Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. I want to take a moment to introduce you to the audience, Dr. Sadeji Najad. Um, so you completed your urology residency and fellowship in male reproductive medicine at, at BU Medical Center. Uh, and you're currently professor of surgery and urology at Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School and chief of urology at New Jersey Veterans Affairs Hospital, as well as director for the Center of Male Reproductive Health at Hackensack University Medical Center. Um, you served on the board of directors for the New York section from 2011 to 2015. And I see you're currently on the ABU exam committee. So we expect to get a lot of high yield facts, testing facts right. for our residents in this talk. Um, while we have you on the line, can you give us any information for, again, for our resident audience about, um, you know, how, the written oral exams will be delivered in uh, post-COVID era. Right. I think a lot of decisions uh, are still are still uh, being finalized. Uh, thank you so much for that very nice introduction by way of a disclosure. So uh, my private practice is at Hackensack. I work very closely with Dr. David Shin, who's a colleague and who's at the department. Uh, was a wonderful person. Um, as far as the exam committee is concerned, uh, we have just made the decision that our meeting for the first time ever will be a virtual meeting, so we will not be getting together in person. Um, uh, and, and I think the board is still deciding on some of the details uh, of, of how the exams are going to be conducted. Uh, our chief residence, as you, you know, the exam has been pushed back, and actually this is a good occasion or a shout out to all the chief residents uh, who are graduating. So congratulations to all of you. Uh, and um, I'm looking forward to uh, giving you a quick review on, on propism and entertaining questions. That's great. Thanks for that, in, that insight. So yes, please, we invite you to, uh, to begin your talk and all I'll right. keep track of any questions in the chat function to address with you at the conclusion. Okay, perfect. So um, I have no financial disclosures. Uh, this is uh, a, a talk on, on priapism that will focus mainly, uh, mainly on, on ischemic uh, priapism. We will also cover uh, uh, arterial priapism as well as recurrent priapism. The definition of priapism is a pathological condition of a penile erection that persists beyond or is unrelated to sexual stimulation. This has really not changed over the years from the American Foundation for Urologic Disease recommendations to the most recent Campbell's chapter by Dr. Broderick, uh, as well as uh, the current urology reports review of the topic. Uh, the timing for priapism has traditionally been defined as four hours. That is something that we all need to uh, remember. That is the time after which most of the pathology is supposed to uh, kick in. Uh, with necrosis and some irreversible changes. A historical perspective, uh, this famous picture, which many of you have seen in various talks, is from the House of Veti in Pompeii. Um, the importance of this site uh, is that uh, in 39 AD, there was a massive volcano 
uh, that destroyed much of Pompeii, but as a result, there is an amazing trove of archaeological uh, treasures. This one, of course, you'll notice this uh, man Priapus leaning against the wall, and he's not looking at his penis, he's actually weighing it. Uh, in the Roman culture, uh, the, uh, they uh, used square pillars with a bearded male and these erect organ to ward off the dreaded and evil eye. And uh, in Greek mythology, Priapus was the son of Dionysus and Aphrodite, the god of fertility. Horticulture, basically, and a deity of, of uh, gardens and fields. So, how do we classify Priapism? Uh, of course, there's ischemic, low flow, and non ischemic or high flow. Uh, ischemic priapism is a medical emergency. Uh, it is uh, a painful process where the patient presents with a very rigid uh, penis. The corpora are rigid, not necessarily the glands. Uh, there is minimal to no inflow. There is hypoxia, hypercarbia, and acidosis. In contrast, non ischemic priapism is a non emergent condition. It is uh, not painful and the penis is typically uh, I would say 70 to 75 percent full so you don't have a rigid erection you have unregulated blood flow there is no hypoxia or acidosis and most of these patients will present uh, with a very obvious history uh, and and they share a trauma history uh, also a word about recurrent priapism uh, those of us uh, in the field see a number of these patients over the uh, over the years they are very difficult to manage it's incredibly stressful for the patients often very young with repeated visits to emergency room uh, these are typically ischemic subtype uh, cases uh, with intermittent periods of detumescence recurrent priapism is very commonly associated with sickle cell disease it's a recurrent and unwanted erection painful, usually nocturnal. And for especially for the sicklers, the problem usually starts in childhood uh, with increased duration to a full-blown ischemic priapism uh, as they age. Also, in terms of the historical perspective, it's important for all of you to be familiar with the three H's. Uh, this is what appeared mainly in the Western literature. Uh, Hinman Sr.'s uh, report on priapism in 1914. Hinman Jr. talking about uh, the difficulties of uh, ischemic uh, priapism, uh, and then Harry, uh, uh, Harry's report in uh, 1983 in terms of um, a high flow priapism. Um, the uh, epidemiological uh, aspects of priapism, uh, I think, really come down to what us wanting to know how often is this problem seen. Uh, this uh, report uh, from U.S. Emergency Department samples uh, came up with about 5% per 100,000 men per year uh, with ER visits required in about 30% of these patients. 13% got hospitalized. The incidence was higher in summer months. Uh, and sickle cell diagnosis uh, involved about 13% adult patients and 31% uh, pediatrics in the sickler population. So this is a problem that mainly affects uh, the younger uh, patients with uh, sickle cell disease. Uh, and a sickle patient has a lifetime probability of anywhere from 29 to 42% of presenting with ischemic priapism. The worldwide incidence rates are affected by the introduction and availability of intracavernosal injection therapy. Uh, and in all of these uh, population studies, the one I've uh, 
uh, posted here in Finland, in the Netherlands, in Australia, uh, the numbers increased dramatically once intracavernosal injection therapy uh, became um, available. Uh, so what are the causes of priapism? Well, we talked about sickle cell disease this is a very comprehensive uh, list, uh, but uh, on here, there are some of the uh, usual suspects, if you would, trazodone, uh, we see all the time. Personally, I've been so frustrated. This is something that since we were uh, medical students, we were told about this, but, but on a regular basis, we see these patients coming in uh, with ischemic priapism due to trazodone. Cocaine and alcohol are also very common uh, culprits, as well as something that is not very common, but is important for all of us to be aware of. And that is when you have a, a metastatic or a regional infiltration into the penis uh, by malignancy. I've seen a few of these cases over the years, and it's very important to be aware of that. And then, of course, you know, the iatrogenic cases, the vasoactive erectile agents. Uh, so in terms of arterial priapism, as I said, the vast majority of these patients will, will give us a trauma history. It is occasionally uh, uh, the case when you see a malignant erosion. This, this uh, table is not from me, and I actually looked up this word erosion with an A. It is actually a real world word. It's an older uh, version of the word erosion, but, but you can see that. Um, drug abuse, injection, these are almost always cause of ischemic priapism, but they can be cause, uh, causes of non-ischemic or arterial priapism as well. This is one of our own reports with Imani Jackson, a patient with uh, alpha blocker induced um, priapism. Uh, you can also uh, um, see a lot of iatrogenic priapism cases, many of them from the injection clinics. Uh, in, in our practices, those of us uh, who specialize in uh, sexual medicine, of course, we do a lot of injections for evaluation. And uh, this report that we had here was basically about reversing anybody who is still erect at the end of the procedure so that they don't go home with a uh, two or three hour painful erection and then come back to the ER, get multiple injections, and, uh, and it's very traumatic for them. And part of the impetus for that, as you can see, is that any visit to the emergency room is a very expensive uh, uh, is a very expensive event. Uh, it's about $2,000. This study was from 2012. If they go home, and up to $40,000 if they end up staying at the hospital. This is an abstract that we did with our resident, Tejas Shah, uh, that was accepted at the AUA, actually was available last week on the AUA website. Uh, this is about my pet peeve about uh, psychiatrists and primary care physicians prescribing trazodone and not telling patients about um, the possible prolonged erections that can be experienced with trazodone. And we found out that many of the patients, in fact, were never told about prolonged erections. This is a picture of uh, a patient uh, with a neurofibrosarcoma. You could see uh, the cutaneous neurofibroma here. And this patient, uh, this is actually from Greg Broderick's series, uh, and it's, uh, the picture is from Campbell's. You could see a, a malignant tumor in the penis itself. So uh, just two seconds for you to think about this. Does this uh, bring up uh, uh, anything in your minds for the chief residents uh, who I'm sure have read uh, Campbell's cover to cover recently for their boards. Uh, they probably know this, a little uh, hint again, phonutria uh, from the Greek uh, murderous. Uh, this, so this is actually from the Brazilian banana spiders. So spiders are actually a cause of priapism. Uh, you'll never look at uh, bananas the same um, again, but this is something for you to be aware of. And now a few words about the pathophysiology. So in terms of ischemic 
A priapism, this is a vasoconstriction, vasorelaxation imbalance with hypoxia and acidosis uh, as a um, uh, result. Uh, the uh, failure of uh, smooth muscle contraction despite alpha-adrenergic stimulation, uh, as well as reperfusion injury after uh, the resolution of the priapism. So in 12 hours, you have trabecular interstitial edema. In 24 hours, you have sinusoidal endothelium uh, being denuded. At 48 hours, you're already seeing smooth muscle cell necrosis uh, and transformation into fibroblast-like cells. Uh, Bob Moreland, who was at BU at the time that I was there, did a lot of the work on TGF-beta-induced, uh, 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 TGF-beta upregulation that was induced by hypoxia being the cause of fibrosis. Uh, what about non-ischemic priapism? Well, remember, this is far less common. It is often trauma-induced, typically due to straddle injury, intercourse, pelvic fracture, uh, even needle lacerations. Uh, and also remember that some of the GU procedures we do, cold knife urethrotomy, Nesbitt plication, have been implicated in, in causing uh, arterial uh, priapism. A penile vessel trauma will cause unregulated blood entry uh, into the penis. So you essentially end up with a fistula between the cavernosal artery and the lacunar spaces. The blood bypasses the helicine arterial bed uh, and a pseudocapsule will eventually form. One thing to remember is that with non-ischemic priapism, uh, the history does not need to be immediately before the patient presented. This could be a day ago, two days uh, prior to their presentation. So it's very important for you uh, to remember that and uh, be aware. What about recurrent priapism? Uh, sickle cell disease is the most common cause, as we mentioned. 72% with priapism have uh, some of these recurrent ischemic uh, episodes. It is an idiopathic uh, uh, problem in many cases, sometimes due to neurological causes. Uh, they uh, will be giving you often a history of prolonged uh, uh, erections uh, that will then uh, lead to these recurrent episodes. The patients uh, that I've seen sometimes will come to the office and tell me that they've been in the emergency room four times, five times in the last uh, two weeks, which is incredibly stressful for them. Uh, Bob Burnett's group at Hopkins uh, introduced a concept of a, a dysregulation, uh, phosphodiesterase 5A dysregulation in penile erectile tissue as a mechanism for this. The idea being that there is a, a endothelial nitric oxide deficiency leading to cyclic GMP-dependent uh, protein kinase downregulation, which then leads to a PD-5 dysregulation. Uh, as a result, you have poor smooth uh, muscle control in the penis with prolonged erection, uh, resulting with various stimuli. Moving on to more of what you will see in the ER and things to focus on in terms of the history, obviously the past medical history, the patient have previous priapism episodes, so what were the effects on the patient's erectile function? How long did this last? Is the penis, uh, was the penis always rigid or sometimes semi-rigid? Is there pain? This is the most important question you can ask because there is a very, it's a, a very reliable uh, differentiator, I would say, not 100%, not but a very reliable indicator of whether you're dealing with uh, the ischemic or non-ischemic variant. Was there trauma? Uh, should be checking for bruising in the pelvis, perineum pelvis, if there was. Uh, has the patient been doing injections? Uh, has he had prolonged morning erections? Uh, ask about medications, PD-5 inhibitors, alpha blockers, as we mentioned, trazodone, uh, cocaine, marijuana. These are common culprits. Uh, and then finally, obviously, the hemoglobinopathies, sickle cell, and hypercoagulable states are very important. So the next 
thing that comes up are the labs. But remember, uh, when you have a patient with priapism, time is absolutely critical. So you really do not want to uh, delay uh, treatment uh, waiting for any labs. The most important thing here is um, to, to look at the aspirate. So you aspirate, you inspect, and then you send the blood gases. Uh, what are the tests that we look for? We want to do a reticulocyte count, CBC, electrophoresis for sickle cell anemias and thalassemias. The sickle dect and LDH uh, in the acute setting, as you know, LDH is elevated uh, in um, sicklers and especially in, uh, in the acute setting of uh, priapism, a urine toxicology, and then the cavernosal uh, blood gas pHs. This is important for you to know. It's in the AUA guidelines. Uh, you need to know uh, this is the picture that you will get in an ischemic priapism case, right? The PO2 less than 30, PCO2 more than 60 with a low pH of less than 7.25. Very important. So what are some of the differentiating uh, findings in these um, cases? Um, uh, you, this, this is a little bit busy. It's, it's um, from the guidelines, but but essentially, if you look at the non-ischemic, it's, it's seldom, seldom, seldom. Essentially, you are dealing with a trauma history often and then poor cavernosal inflow. And then the ischemic um, scenario we talked about, uh, sometimes after injection, uh, usually the corpora are rigid. And then usually, I would say this is probably an understatement. Almost always, they will have penile uh, pain. What about imaging for, for this problem? Remember, imaging... Uh, is an adjunct to the corporal aspirate, especially when dealing with the ischemic cases. Uh, in ischemic uh, priapism, you have no flow or minimal flow. In the non-ischemic, you have high arterial flow where you have a fistula formation and a pseudoaneurysm. The problem with ultrasound, of course, is that it's operator dependent. Uh, the person, the tech that you have uh, may not be comfortable with it. I do all of my own ultrasounds, uh, but it is not something that necessarily you're gonna want to do or is available in all emergency rooms. Um, where ultrasound can be helpful is in the evaluation of a full or partial erection after the patient has been treated, where um, the differential diagnosis will be a resolved ischemia, penile edema with persistent ischemia, or a conversion to a high flow state. Remember, this is something that has been described in the literature where a patient presents with ischemic priapism. There are multiple injections, people poking them with needles, and then you convert them to a high flow state. This is not very unusual. You're going to do an ultrasound. It's very important to image the curl bodies here on the right side, you see uh, an arterial sinusoidal fistula. This is uh, from Campbell's. But the point is it's very important to, to go below the scrotum and image the entire corpora. What about MRI? There are three possible indications, imaging for an AV fistula. The problem is there's a poor resolution for the smaller vessels, uh, tissue thrombus and non-viable tissue. And then for corporal mets and malignancies, that's I would say is probably the strongest indication. What about angiography? Well. This has really no role in ischemic priapism. It's typically for high flow priapism. Remember that it is therapeutic and not diagnostic. It's for embolization. Anytime that you think about angiography, if you're ordering angiography, if your attendings are ordering angiography, question it. Your attendings may be wrong. Beware of the penile blood flow source. If this person has had ischemic priapism for a long time, the, the blood flow is already affected. If you do an angiography, if you embolize, you could actually cut down more of the blood flow. I've actually heard of some cases where somebody lost their penis, complete necrosis, because of the wrong test ordered in the wrong setting. This is, this is very serious, and you have to pay attention to why you are ordering which test. 
Moving on to treatment. So ideally, you want to get to the patient within four to six hours. Your goal is to pause detumescence, relieve the pain, and preserve erectile function. Uh, neither the uh, American Urological Association guidelines nor the, uh, nor the EAU guidelines recommend oral therapies for the treatment of ischemic priapism. Um, so some of the treatments that uh, have been uh, recommended in the past as possible treatments for recurrent, remember this is for recurrent priapism, not for ischemic priapism or uh, oral alpha agonist, the joxin, that was actually our own work when I was with Erwin Goldstein. We, Gave up on that uh, front, terbutaline, gabapentin, and baclofen. So many, many different treatments have been uh, offered over the years. Um, hormonal therapies. Uh, this is in the EAU guidelines as well. It is not recommended that these be given before sexual maturation. Uh, PDE5 inhibitors, paradoxical effects of PDE5 inhibitors, uh, as I said before, due to uh, the work that was done by Bud Burnett's group on the dysregulation. And it's uh, found that when you give patients low-dose um, continued PD-5 inhibitors, you, you change that dysregulation problem. Uh, initially, when this started, we were all hoping that this would work in all priapism patients, but unfortunately, it's been mainly effective in spinal, uh, in um, sickle cell patients, but it is something for you to be aware of. And then finally, uh, intracavernosal self-injections. I have a number of patients with recurrent priapism that over the years I have managed by teaching them how to do self-injections at home. They know what an episode is about to lead on to uh, a longer, more difficult scenario, and they will inject themselves and manage it well. And believe me, these patients pay attention to the dosage. They, uh, they know exactly uh, how to do it because they are desperate to avoid that ER visit. A word on etilephrine. This is not available in the US. It's a mixed alpha and beta adrenergic agonist. It's in the latest Campbell's. You need to be aware of it. Uh, it has had some efficacy treating stuttering priapism. Uh, in sickle, sickle cell patients uh, with escalating doses uh, with a pretty significant reduction in, uh, in frequency and duration. It's not available here. You're not going to be asked on it on, uh, on any um, uh, board exams uh, for something that is not available here, but it is important for you to know this may be coming in the future. Uh, this is something that I have tried. It's uh, Larry Levine's work in Chicago. I found it very effective. Essentially, it's looking at ketoconazole for recurrent priapism. Some of the patients, as I said, are absolutely desperate. Nothing else is working for them. So uh, the, the solution that they came up with is to give ketoconazole 200 TID with prednisone. So this is, remember, the high dose. The prednisone is given for the first two weeks when you are giving the high dose uh, of this antiandrogen. And then you move on to 200 milligrams nightly for six months. At this time, the patient does not need to be on prednisone. And when they did this, they had a 94% complete resolution. It was effective immediately after starting treatment. There were no reported sexual adverse events due to ketoconazole. 29%, in fact, had no recurrence at all. And 78.6% had partial or total resolution. I can tell you that I've tried this, and I want to say three or four patients over the past few years, and it's been very successful. So it's something for you to remember. And if you have these patients, you could go back, look up uh, Larry's uh, paper, or... Um, just remember the dosage that I mentioned. Uh, so for the ischemic priapism, we want our treatment to be timely and assertive. When you are seeing these patients in the ER, please remember to give them a nerve block. Please give them the local. They are, they've already been miserable with pain. Uh, you need to relieve uh, their, their discomfort. Uh, the idea is to decompress, and that's why you will do the aspiration, irrigate when necessary. I would say this is rare nowadays. Most of the guidelines have moved away from it. 
It is not something that is highly supported. In some cases, uh, you could do it if you think you may uh, have some luck uh, moving the thrombus. That has not been my experience. Um, injection of alpha agents is the next step that's recommended by uh, both uh, AUA and EAU guidelines, and the agent recommended is phenylephrine. Why phenylephrine? This is a selective alpha agonist. Remember, it's not a pure alpha agonist. There is a minimal beta-mediated ionotropic chronotropic effect. Uh, the recommendation by the EAU and AUA is about 100 to 500 micrograms per ml in one ml doses every three to five minutes. The maximum is one milligram for no more than one hour. Now, again, this is unofficial from me. This is not, not official in any of these guidelines. But this one ml concept in my own practice, I usually don't give this this much. Uh, the reason being that it is my belief that the more volume that you inject, the more likely it is that this will make it out of the penis and into the systemic circulation. The dose is still the same, but you can give slightly less volume. It's very important not to not to exceed the total doses, and that's very very important. You should all, especially with the junior residents, you should. Uh, and, and we're in the summer months, the new group is starting, they're gonna be called to the ER, the chief residents, the attendings need to go over how to dilute phenylephrine properly. You can kill people if you don't do it properly. Um, should I irrigate? So the AUA guidelines uh, recommend uh, that there is insufficient data uh, for saying that cold irrigation is really any more effective than aspiration alone, important for you. This is a courtesy of uh, my friend, Greg Broderick, uh, he actually presented this at the AUA last year. Uh, you could just imagine, uh, uh, you know, a, a non-experienced urologist seeing this picture and totally being overwhelmed that, oh my God, look at all the blood that was aspirated. You can see this often. In fact, you often have to do this if you are going to finally get to the place where you are uh, seeing oxygenated blood refilling the corpora. You inject an irrigate dilute alpha-adrenergic uh, drug until you get the system going. Um, now we come to the idea of the shunt. So the idea here is to reoxygenate and bring back corporal blood flow, creating a connection uh, between, um, uh, between the, the corpus cavernosum uh, and the corpus fungiosum. So you're essentially creating a uh, fistula and uh, this can be between corpus cavernosum and the glands, corpus cavernosum and corpus fungiosum. Uh, or uh, the dorsal or saphenous vein, as I will mention in a minute. So what are these shunts? The percutaneous shunts, the ebahoy and the winter, and the T-shunt, the open distal shunts, the algorab, which you've all heard of, uh, with possibly the addition of the corporal snake, which we'll talk about, the T-shunt, or T, the T and snake uh, shunt, the open proximal shunt, uh, first talked about by Quackles and Sacker, whether it's unilateral or bilateral, saphenous vein shunt, gray hack, and deep dorsal vein, which is Perry's idea. So uh, recommendation eight of the guidelines, the use of surgical shunts for treatment of ischemic priapism should be considered uh, after a trial of intracavernous injection has failed. So you don't do a shunt before having done your uh, alpha-adrenergic injections. The EAU guidelines similarly talk about it being a second step after failure of aspiration and injection of sympathomimetic drug. Uh, for priapism lasting less than 72 hours. Why? Because after 72 hours, the chance of it working may be uh, less, and in a way you are traumatizing the penis with very low chance of success. So on the left side, you see a representation of the various percutaneous uh, injections with the percutaneous approaches. The winter shunt, which is really not my favorite, I think you can 
use a large board needle, but but if the injections haven't worked, my experience is that this is often not very successful. This is the, uh, but, but again, if it's an early case, you, you can uh, succeed using it. This is the Ebohoi uh, using uh, the 11 blade, as you can see. Uh, and then this is the T-shunt. Notice the difference here, you have a 10 blade uh, using it. Um, the, uh, the image on the right uh, by Tom Liu's group shows how your 10 blade goes in parallel uh, to the urethra through the meatus, and then this is the most critical thing. You do not turn that 10 blade toward the urethra. It goes away from the urethra. It makes sense. Uh, that's what you do. And then, of course, you can you can still uh, modify that by uh, by putting in a sound through that opening to get some of that uh, thrombus um, out. So that's the T and the snake. Uh, the algorab procedure. So now we're moving on to the open cases. Here, the idea is excision of a a uh, circular uh, cone of segments uh, of the uh, distal tunica, a five by five millimeter segment is cut. Uh, and this is some of our own uh, intraoperative pictures where you could see uh, the glands is open. We've uh, cut the tip uh, of the tunica on both sides. It looks like a shotgun barrel. And then here, this is the uh, closure of the glands without closing this. So you leave this open, you just close the skin, you're creating a shunt between the corporate cavernosa and the sponge. Uh, to create that fistula. This is Bob Burnett's, uh, Bud Burnett's contribution, uh, the snake maneuver. The truth is many of us were using uh, variations of this, uh, using um, Brooks dialers, using Foley catheters, uh, using the suction tip. Um, but if you're very smart like Bud is, you also give it a good name. So it was called the snake maneuver. And, and now uh, everybody is doing it, which is the right thing to do. You move the thrombus out. Uh, and, and this makes the algorithm much more effective. The success rates uh, of these shunts is excellent when you are doing them in less than 24 hours. Almost 100% resolution as shown in this study by Zacharakis. This is David Routh's groups from the UK. But look at this. If this has been lasting more than 48 hours, 70% of these cases fail. So that's a very high failure rate. Now, the, the algorithm in the AUA guidelines, is that okay, so if the, the distal shunts fail, then you move on to the uh, proximal shunts, right? So the unilateral is quackles, the bilateral uh, is sacker. It's important for you to know that if you're doing a bilateral, you do a, staggered, uh, you do a staggered shunt. Why do you do it staggered? Because if you don't do it staggered, there's a theoretical higher chance of getting a urethral stricture. This is relatively easy to do. The success rate, unfortunately, is not great for none of the for any of these because by the time that you're doing it, time has gone on and the patient probably has a lot of thrombosis. Uh, so uh, this is the um, this is the saphenous connection. This is a wonderful drawing from uh, from Campbell's. It's a, this Mayo Clinic artist is fantastic. Look at this beautiful image uh, showing the saphenous connection um, um, to um, the corpus on one side. This is the dorsal vein, you can see the dorsal vein is tied off distally, the proximal end is connected to the corpus cavernosum. So what is the problem with these things? You can get uh, a, a high rate of uh, DVT and PE. Know this, and, and, and it's important to know it. And, and as a result, these are really not very popular. They're difficult operations with, with high morbidity. Uh, I like this work by Alan Morris' group. Uh, uh, Alan is well aware. Uh, of, of the problems that we've had with some of these shunts. He also is showing us here a picture of somebody who's had an implant that's extruded 
from a distal shunt that had been done recently, or this is a near extrusion, as you can see here. This is about to come out through the urethra. So he talks about a penoscleral decompression. I can tell you, I get uh, about three or four calls uh, a year, at least from some of the past residents in practice dealing with a case uh, of a priapism that is not resolving. And I say, look, this is what you're familiar with. You've done a lot of implants, go through the scrotum. You're not screwing up the distal uh, retrograde blood flow this way from the glands. So go through the scrotum, open up. Here you could see uh, Alan has opened one corpus cavernosum. You see dark blood coming out. Uh, and then here you could see after they've done their thing there, you see fresh blood coming out here. And on the other side, you see the dark blood. So this is, I think, very effective and a, and a good idea. Um, what about uh, the idea of prostheses and priapism? So the idea here is to decrease the long-term anoxic injury, decrease psychological trauma of the repeated episodes, and decrease complications if you go in and insert it immediately. This is a, a slide that makes its way into many of my uh, difficult implant talks. I tell the residents when you see this, please remember this is not Peyronie's disease. This is not a, a urology implant uh, for the inexperienced implanter. Um, Dr. Valenzuela can, can, of course, put an implant in this patient. But this is not an easy case. Uh, this is a case where you will need cavernotomes, right? So uh, if, you, if you have an untreated ischemic priapism, you are going to end up with that severe fibrosis. What are some of the relevant milestones, milestones when it comes to the prostheses? Um, the first um, two that I have there are from the 80s. Uh, this uh, paper from Kalami talked about uh, an infrapubic approach to put in uh, a semi-rigid small carry-on implant. Obviously, you can imagine how difficult it was back then. Uh, Colley Carson and uh, Bertram uh, and George Webster's uh, paper in 85 talked about uh, six patients uh, uh, who uh, ended up uh, getting an implant, uh, uh, an attempted implant. I think they were able to put it in five of the six. Uh, these papers uh, move on to the next era, uh, looking at uh, sickle patients, in this case, uh, Manoj Munga, uh, Greg Broderick and Wayne Hellstrom talk about an early implantation, but I think when it comes to the idea of implants and priapism, really the group that gets the credit for our current thinking is, is David Ralph's group, where they talk about the immediate insertion of a penile prosthesis. The advantages being that there's no fibrosis, it is easier to put it in, uh, and then you have uh, the advantage of uh, preserving length and girth. Uh, the best timing for this is unclear. Uh, we do know that there's significantly higher complications in post-priapism cases. So the International Consultation of Sexual Medicine recommendation in 2009 talks about indications being failed aspiration and uh, injections, failed distal and proximal shunting, ischemia more than 36 hours, or in the delayed setting, um, management of confirmed erectile dysfunction. Remember, this is gonna be that very difficult group. Optional uh, things to do are an MRI pre-op and a corporal biopsy to document corporal necrosis. Again, this is mainly for the medical legal aspect. Uh, of this. The timing of this, as I said, is controversial. Uh, there are technical considerations. Has the distal shunt closed? Uh, we know that there is an increased infection rate due to multiple uh, injections. Ideally, I would say three weeks that I, uh, is a good time. This is from a publication in 2017 looking at um, various factors. That uh, three weeks, uh, the sh shunt is probably beginning to heal, especially if you put a uh, non-semi-rigid and inflatable implant, the chance of it extruding through a distal shunt are lower, the fibrosis is not setting, and you hopefully still have some unorganized clot in the corpora that'll allow you to place that uh, implant, and your team can hopefully by then get some insurance authorization to address the, the logistical issues. Uh, the last few slides, just a word on arterial priapism. Remember, this is not an emergency. 
uh, eye supply to the perineum can be effective. We can do site-specific perineal compression, which is especially effective in, in uh, children. Uh, the recommended treatment for arterial priapism is either nothing initially, knowing that a lot of these cases improve spontaneously, or selective arterial embolization. Again, I've said it before, I'm going to repeat it, you need to be sure of your diagnosis. You do not want to embolize an ischemic case, you're going to have headaches. Uh, if it recurs, embolize again. Uh, and remember that with arterial priapism, unlike the ischemic variant, sexual function preservation is excellent. The recommendation for the AUA guidelines is to use autologous clot and absorbable gels, the EAU. Similar recommendations, except they do say that there are no, um, there, there's no um, preference in terms of the best substance uh, for preserving sexual uh, function. And when nothing else works, there's always ice. So I think that's my last slide. If there are any questions, I'm happy to answer. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, thank you. That was a really wonderful overview on this topic, um, which is, you know, a common, uh, relatively common emergency that we all face as urologists and definitely a high yield testing topic. We do have some questions um, that people have posted. Um, so do you find sickle cell trait patients are at increased risk for priapism? A uh, slightly increased risk, but it's really mainly the, the, the sickle cell disease patients that have the, the highest risk. Uh, there's more sludging, and that, that's really the, the, main, the main group that you need to worry about. And do you routinely refer these patients to a hematologist? So this is very important, uh, actually. Um, you know, the thinking was, especially for the pediatric patients, these patients would come in and then the hematologist, oncologist who'd been uh, seeing them, would manage them. They would often be on those floors as they still are. Uh, and they would get exchange transfusions and the hydrations and all of that. And, and little by little, people found that, look, that, that is great for their overall condition. That's helpful, helpful for their pain, uh, which, of course, can involve multiple organs. But, uh, and, and there was really not much time uh, to add all this information, but it's uh, important for you to know uh, and this is in, in Campbell's as well, that, that the, the treatment for, uh, for a sickle cell priapism is a, is a combined approach. In other words, the hematology oncology team gets involved, they do their thing, but you need to go and do the things that you would do for the ischemic priapism case, the aspiration and the injection. That is very, very important. Uh, so I'm glad somebody brought that up. Um, um, while we continue to address some of these questions, we're going to give Dr. Kanashian control of the screen and invite him to start uploading his slides, and I'll continue asking you some, some questions. Um, sure. So some people want to know what your opinion is on 5-alpha reductase inhibitors for recurrent priapism. So um, they have been used as well uh, over the years. Uh, we have had it for a while. Uh, and again, you know, the, the, the five ARIs uh, are uh, a reasonable option. Some of these patients uh, are younger. And, um, you know, with uh, five ARIs, as you know, there had been some concerns about uh, decreased libido. There, are, there is definitely a, a very large group of people who actually uh, do not like to give five ARIs, especially to young people worrying about um, libido problems, erectile dysfunction problems, um, that the science of the 5-ARI syndrome causing 
permanent erectile dysfunction has never really been definitively proven. But because of those concerns, I would say there is less enthusiasm for, for that in my own practice, as I said, teaching patients to do self-injection, as well as in some cases using the ketoconazole has been, uh, has been uh, very effective. So I generally try to stay away from 5-ARIs in the young but but it is an option. And um, what is your experience if, if people have had these uh, shunt procedures, distal shunt procedures within 24 hours, do you find that they retain some erectile dysfunction uh, function in the long term? Uh, so uh, the, the key thing in that question is the timing. You know, I think that the sooner you can get to these patients and relieve that, that pressure uh, to prevent uh, some of the cellular effects that we talked about initially. Remember, after 48 hours, um, much of this is irreversible. Uh, and, and it is very important for all of you when you see these patients to document in the chart for the patient who's coming in at 48 hours that, look, you know, I can relieve the obstruction, I can relieve the pain, but there is a very good chance you may still end up with erectile dysfunction. So if you get to them within 24 hours, some of them will in fact, yes, maintain their erectile function, but the timing is absolutely critical. Uh, because remember, the, the, ischemic erect, the ischemic priapism is really like a compartment syndrome. Uh, and once you lose those cells, you've lost them. 